Welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Centralia, Washington. During each episode, you will hear the sermons, liturgy, discussions, and interviews from the various weekly gatherings here at Christ Covenant Church. If you would like to find out more, please visit us online at ChristCovenantCentralia.com. Please enjoy the following audio. Let us rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. The responsive reading this morning is from Psalm number 80, verses 1 through 7. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. Thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come in, come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. So lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has sent thine only begotten Son, and hast revealed him as creator of all things, look upon this vine which thy right hand hath planted, prune away the thorns from it, bring forth its branches in might, and give us the fruit of truth. Wherefore we say, Glory be to the Father, the Lord God of hosts. Glory be to the Son, the Shepherd of Israel. Glory be to the Holy Ghost, the sevenfold light of the countenance of God as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. On those occasions uh, where I will be called to minister the first portion of the liturgy and offer an exhortation, I want to draw from the five faithful and trustworthy sayings of Paul found in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And this morning... The first one I would like to consider is 1 Timothy 1, verses 15 through 16, and it says this. It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him, for eternal life. Now, when we look at those, those two verses, we notice a couple things immediately. One is we notice the incarnation, and the other one is we notice the, we, we see the redemption that Christ has wrought. Salvation for the Apostle Paul is primarily an eschatological uh, term dealing with human destiny. But eschatological salvation has already begun in this present work of Christ, Hence, saving sinners also means saving us from our present sinfulness. Paul personalizes the saying by claiming he is the foremost among sinners. This is not a form of hyperbole. 
or is he, nor is he being morbid about his sinful past, but he says this precisely because of his own experience of God's mercy and grace. Paul recognizes, as, as we should, as always having the status of sinner redeemed. Paul, after his statement of being worst among sinners, is now able to make his final point in the testimony of God's grace. The reason for God's for God saving Paul, a chief sinner, is to set forth Paul as a primary exhibit for all other sinners who would put their trust, faith, and hope in Christ for eternal life. As we consider our own sinful life, we can join with Paul in saying, if God would do it to me, given who I was or what I did, then there is hope for all. Finally, it should be noted that Paul says, of whom I am the foremost among sinners, not I was the foremost among sinners. And this should remind us of our need to confess our sins, so as you are able, let us kneel before the Lord. Father, we confess all these sins to you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Let us rise for the, answer, the assurance of God's pardon. The enemies of God are brought down and fallen. But we are risen and stand upright. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is God's mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Saints of Christ's covenant church, because you have confessed your sins, holding nothing back, it is my joy to announce to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11, verses 12 to 26. These are the words of God. And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if happily, he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto it, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. And they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught saying unto them, is it not written, my house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer? But ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering saith unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, 
that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if ye do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Let us pray. Father, we confess that there are times when we are as stubborn and immovable as mountains in our unwillingness to forgive others. And so we ask now that you would cast us into a sea of grace and mercy as we behold Christ entering the temple and exercising judgment upon it. Make us to be fruitful in love and good works so that we might be assured of our salvation and look with greater hope and joy to your final judgment. We ask this in Jesus' name. And amen. Amen. Well, it is Monday of Passion Week in Mark's Gospel. In just a few days, Jesus will be captured, crucified, buried, and then the third day rise from the dead. And as Jesus approaches the ultimate end for which he came to this earth, that is, to die and rise for you, we see also that his warnings of judgment intensify. You see, uh, it is one thing to reject Jesus when he has not yet fully revealed himself to be the eternal Son of God. So uh, you could be forgiven at this point in Mark's gospel for not recognizing that Jesus is a divine person who created the world and created you. You could be forgiven for rejecting someone that appears to be a mere man, and you would be actually right not to worship him if that is all that he is. But with every new miracle that Jesus performs and every sign and wonder and teaching that he gives, the more your culpability increases. That is to say, the more you know about Jesus and who he is and what he has done, the more dangerous it is to not obey him. It is this rejection of Jesus as Lord that will eventually burn the city of Jerusalem to the ground 40 years later. In AD 70, during the Jewish-Roman War, the words of Christ were fulfilled that not one stone of the temple shall be left upon another, Mark 13, 2. And so uh, what we have in our text this morning is actually uh, the final miracle that Mark records before the resurrection. And as with all of Jesus' uh, actions and miracles, this one also has great symbolic import. So what is the miracle? Well, it's the accelerated destruction of a fig tree. Jesus curses a fig tree, and the next day it's all dried up. And, uh, you know, we kind of have to admit this is, an odd, this is an odd miracle to go out with, right? If the grand finale is the, rec- is the resurrection, uh, killing a tree is kind of a, you know, that's an odd setup for it. So uh, what does Jesus want to teach us by this uh, cursing of the fig tree? That is the question we'll be answering in our sermon. I'll give you an overview of uh, the passage here. Uh, Our passage divides neatly into three sections. So in verses uh, 12 to 14, Jesus curses the fig tree. In verses 15 to 19, he casts out the buyers and sellers in the temple. And then in verses 20 to 26, the disciples see the fig tree is dead, and then Jesus teaches about prayer. So you'll notice, even in the structure of this 
uh, passage that the cursing of the fig tree and its apparent death kind of sandwiches the judgment on the temple. And Mark uh, has placed these two actions of Jesus together because they are mutually interpreting. So one explains the other. So with that in mind, uh, let's walk through our text now. Uh, Starting in verse 12, it says, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. We recall uh, that Jesus is likely staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus at their home in Bethany. Uh, Bethany is situated on the Mount of Olives and is just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. We remember also that Jesus just visited the temple and surveyed what was going on there the night before. So uh, Jesus uh, uh, went in there on uh, the donkey, he looks around and he goes back, and then the next day his disciples arise with him and they set off to go back to to Jerusalem. And while they're on this uh, journey, probably took about an hour to walk from Bethany uh, to Jerusalem, they're on the Mount of Olives and it says, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. Now, uh, because Jesus is a divine person with a human nature, not a human person with a divine nature, that's a heresy. He's a divine person with a human nature. Jesus is not a human person with a divine nature. Remember that. Because Jesus is a divine person, the fact that Jesus is said to be hungry here is not just because he skipped breakfast that morning. right? And we already know from earlier in the gospel that Jesus went 40 days and 40 nights without eating or drinking, right? He was tempted in in the wilderness by the devil. So the purpose of his decision to be hungry here is to teach us something. And what is that lesson? Well, it's meant to teach us that God is hungry for you. Have you ever wondered why God commanded Israel to offer him all those animals, all the firstborn, all the first fruits of their harvest? Why did he command them to come up three times a year and offer him a sacrifice? Why do we tithe? Why does God command his people to give him a tenth of the increased? Well, it should be obvious to you that it is not because God actually like needs your animals or needs your vegetables. God has no body. He is not physically hungry like you and I. So why is he doing this? Why does he command that we come up to him and offer uh, these tithes and offerings to him? Well, the reason is because we need him. We need this. We need regular and constant reminders that all that we have and all that we are actually comes from God. We are utterly dependent on him. Furthermore, the animals, the fruits, the offerings themselves are intended to be signs of our works. When you give a gift to someone you love, you should be trying to give them a piece of yourself. Right? Our gifts are meaningful because they represent something of us, something of our love or our appreciation or our uh, devotion to someone. And because we cannot uh, literally give ourselves to someone else, except in marriage, uh, gifts are a proxy. They are a stand-in for us. And so when God commands his people to tithe and give him the first fruits, God is actually trying to give us more of himself. When we give to God, we are the ones who actually get rich. 
we place something very temporal, something that will rot in a few weeks, you know, if, if it's a vegetable. We put an animal that's here today and gone tomorrow. We place those temporal things on the altar, an animal that God has no need for. And what do we receive back from him? Well, we ought to receive something like joy and gladness, something spiritual and eternal, something that we call salvation. For as Jesus says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And so to give to God because he is hungry is really to receive from God what our souls are hungry for. When we give, we are deified. We partake of the divine nature in that we become like God, who is the giver of all things. 2 Peter 1.4 So when Jesus chooses to be hungry here, he's actually signifying that God is hungry for us. God desires us, and we ought to desire him. Continuing in verse 13. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for the time of figs was not yet. So hungry Jesus sees from afar what looks like a healthy fig tree. But when he gets closer, he finds that the tree is all leaves and no fruit. And Mark adds this comment, for the time of figs was not yet. What is going on here? Well, we already know that these events take place during a Passover week. And depending on which year you place the death and resurrection in, either 30 or 33, it's either the last week of March or the first week of April. We can actually like, almost date the exact day uh, that this happened. We also know uh, from other places in Scripture, like Song of Solomon 2.13, that in the springtime, green figs would begin to grow, and then by late summer, they would be ready to harvest. You know, if you uh, noticed in the two readings that uh, Luke read, there's this mentioning of, of figs. You know, if you search the Bible, figs happen, uh, uh, they're all over the place. There's like some 60-plus mentioning of figs in the Bible. And remember, what did Adam and Eve make their first garments out of? Fig leaves, right? So th there's a huge theme you could just trace of figs from Genesis all the way to, to Revelation, and Jesus is picking up on that here. So uh, Jesus himself is going to say uh, a few chapters later when we get to Mark 13, verse 28, he says this, Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. And this, is, this is in the context of uh, judgment coming. So here's a fig tree, a real fig tree, that looks promising from a distance. Its leaves are growing, but when Jesus comes to it, he finds there are no green figs. There are no beginnings of what will become a late summer harvest. And so what does hungry Jesus say to the fig tree? Verse 14, And Jesus answered and said unto it, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Notice that Jesus is not making the fig tree unfruitful. It's already unfruitful. And therefore, his curse is really just telling the honest truth about the health of the tree. Right? Jesus is like a doctor giving the diagnosis that this fig tree, for all its appearances of life, for all its leaves, will never produce figs. It is actually barren. It is sterile. It is all leaves and no fruit. He says, no man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. This is what a curse is, right? The, the curse is just telling the truth of 
of the state of a person or the state of a nation. So when Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you know, you whitewash tombs, you know, he's, he's throwing blows. Uh, he's just telling them the truth about them, right? Jesus does not give uh, just insults to try to make them, uh, you know, hurt their feelings unless he's trying to call them to repentance. So that's, that's what he's doing here to this fig tree. So Jesus declares this and the disciples hear it. All right, that's our first scene. Jesus sees the fig tree from afar. It has the appearance of life, but when he comes near to it, it's fruitless, and so he declares its judgment. All right, now we move to our second scene, which is a parallel to this. So now Jesus, remember where he is on the Mount of Olives, he sees Jerusalem from afar, and he comes close. He inspected it the night before, and now he comes to judge the temple. Verses 15 and 16. And they come to Jerusalem. And Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. All right, this is a a story that a lot of people know, and it uh, is a, a scene that is recorded in all four Gospels. And uh, it's common for interpreters uh, to see in this scene a kind of uh, divine commentary on class warfare. So Jesus is, you know, turning over the tables of the capitalists, they're the money changers, because, you know, their exchange rates are too high. Or uh, Jesus is uh, condemning the price gouging at the temple. So it's kind of like, you know, you go to the airport. They don't let you take any liquids in, and then they charge you like $12 for a bottle of water once you get in, right? You're like, this this, this is unjust, right? So a lot of people have kind of read certain economic uh, commentary from Jesus into this text, and while there was certainly uh, a lot of economic oppression taking place at the temple, uh, that is not the only or even primary reason why Jesus is turning over their tables. Uh, And we know this because Jesus is not just casting out the sellers, you know, for their high prices or whatever. He's also casting out the buyers. You see that in verse 15. It says, he cast out them that sold and bought in the temple. Okay, so selling, uh, selling doves, selling uh, sacrificial animals, uh, even doing the money exchange was not sinful in and of itself, right? And it actually was a good thing for them to do, and they used to do it on the Mount of Olives. So let's say, you know, you live 20 miles away, you want to bring your firstborn lamb to go sacrifice it to God. Well, you're actually taking a risk to bring your spotless lamb or, you know, your first fruits produce on that journey, you know, whether from Jericho to Jerusalem or wherever, because what if it does get a spot? What if it gets injured along the way? And then you just brought that animal to the temple, but by the time it gets there, the priest will tell you, uh, this is a lame animal. Uh, you're going to have to go exchange this for one of the ones in the marketplace, okay? So uh, the money changing, the selling of sacrificial animals was a good service in and of itself. And so why does Jesus cast them out? What is the problem? Well, according to, to Jesus, the problem is where they are doing this and why. The problem is where they are doing it and why. Verses 17 to 19. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. And when even was come, 
he went out of the city. Now, we are just given just the tiniest little bit of what Jesus was teaching in the temple. So we're not given the full sermon or all that he is saying as he's casting out uh, these money changers. But uh, the two things that Mark gives us from Jesus' teaching here are actually two quotations from the Old Testament. Jesus quotes two Old Testament passages here. And when you hear them in their full context, it really makes clear why Jesus is doing what he is doing. So I want to read you a couple larger chunks of text so that you can understand the force of his teaching. So when Jesus says, my house shall be called of all nations, the house of prayer, he's actually quoting from Isaiah 56 verse seven. Well, let me read you uh, Isaiah 56 verses one to eight. See if you can catch the context here. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, Here I am, a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, and hold fast my covenant, even to them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations." The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather to him others besides those who are gathered to him. So you notice the whole point of this section in Isaiah is that God's house, God's temple, God's holy mountain is, is intended to be a place of worship for all the nations, for foreigners, for eunuchs, for the children of Gentiles who love the Lord. God says, To them I will give within my house and within my walls a place and a name better than sons and daughters. And yet, what had the Jews done to that place? They had actually taken it away. They had kicked out the Gentiles. They erected a literal wall of hostility with warning signs. You know, a Gentile could not enter in past a certain uh, threshold. And they had turned their place of worship into a place for trade. And so Jesus is outraged by this. He says, this is not what God required in Isaiah. He comes to set things right. The second text that Jesus quotes is from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. And I'll read a few portions of that surrounding context. It says, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house And proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah, who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. 
For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. So there, Jeremiah is sent to the temple to call the Jews to repentance. And the charge against them is that they trust in the, the physical temple with all its pomp and beauty and external glory. They trust in the leaves of the temple. And they think that they are safe there, despite all their wickedness and injustice and even murder and bloodshed. So the Jews had, uh, Jesus is saying the Jews had turned their temple, God's house, into a kind of a mafia hideout space. That's, their, that's what a robber's den is. Uh, they had turned the temple into a front for their various money laundering schemes. And so back in Jeremiah's day, he warns them that the temple is not going to protect them if they're disobeying God. And in fact, it's actually going to be worse for them if they remain there without repentance. If you read on in the book of Jeremiah, it's a very long book, uh, you will learn that he is one of the prophets who actually lived through uh, the Babylonian conquest and the destruction of Jerusalem, right? He writes the book of Lamentations, lamenting the destruction of the temple. And so when Jesus comes to the temple, quoting Jeremiah, quoting specifically these lines from Isaiah and Jeremiah, he is putting them on notice. He's letting them know that if they do not repent, the same thing that happened to the temple in Jeremiah's day, their house being left desolate, is going to happen to them. Jerusalem and its temple, the scribes and the Pharisees, are the fig tree that you can see from a distance. And it appears beautiful and healthy and full of leaves. They have external beauty, external glory. But when Jesus comes closer to it and investigates, he finds there is no fruit. They're actually dead inside. This is further proved out by how the scribes and Pharisees react to this teaching. Right? They could have repented and welcomed the Gentiles back in. They could have confessed and acknowledged that what they were doing was contrary to God's law. But instead, what do they do? They mark Jesus as someone who needs to be taken out. Verse 18 says, And the scribes and chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. So just to summarize, the fig tree is a parable of Jerusalem and its future. If they do not bear fruit, if they persist in their hypocrisy, no man will ever eat fruit from it again. The temple will be destroyed, and as Jesus says in Matthew 21, 43, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Well, after this judgment on the fig tree and the temple... Jesus elaborates on how this future transfer of the kingdom is going to take place. This is uh, what he's speaking about in verses 20 to 26. It says, And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering, saith unto them, Have faith in God. 
For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you, What things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now a lot of people uh, read a text like this and they think this is kind of a non sequitur. Right? Why does Jesus go from talking about a fig tree and cleansing the temple to talking about you know, prayer and mountains and forgiveness? Well, first... Remember that Jerusalem is the mountain of prayer. Right? Jerusalem is the mountain of prayer. The temple itself is also structured like a mountain. So it's laid out horizontally. Uh, it's, a, it's a vertical mountain that's laid out horizontally so that as you actually go in from the outer court to the inner court to the sanctuary to the holy place, you are symbolically ascending up Sinai like Moses into uh, the darkness a cloud and throne of God's glory. That's the most holy place, right? So when Jesus tells his disciples that by their faith in God, they can move mountains, uh, this is, of course, literally true. It's true in that God can do whatever he wants. And if we ask according to his will, it will be done, right? If God can part the Red Sea, if God can make the sun to stand still, if God can rain down bread from heaven, if God could save you who are chief of sinners, uh, he can certainly move a mountain if there is you know, an actual real need to move it. Um, although this is literally true, that God can move mountains by our prayers, uh, I believe that Jesus has something a lot more specific in mind that is unique to the apostles and the first century. And that is that when Jerusalem and the temple mountain is destroyed, the church is going to become the new place of worship. The church is going to become the house of prayer for all nations. And this is why Jesus then speaks so forcefully about forgiveness. The reason why Jesus was angry at the Jews for excluding the Gentiles is because the Gentiles need the forgiveness of sins. And under the old covenant, that seeking of God's forgiveness was ritualized by the temple sacrifices. And so the Jews were actually getting in the way. They were literally keeping the Gentiles out of the kingdom of God by their you know, uh, zealous nationalism, their pride, what have you. So the Jews are getting in the way of God cleansing the nations. Instead of being like that river of living water that flowed out of Ezekiel's visionary temple, they had become like the Dead Sea. They were ingrown, they were hostile, they were murderous, and they did not want God's grace going out to the ends of the earth. And what we find in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament is really the Jewish establishment doubling down on this rejection of Christ. And by the prayers of the church in the first century, by the prayers of these 12 disciples, these 12 apostles that Jesus is speaking to, sans Judas, by the prayers of them, God indeed did cast that mountain into the sea. In, in the Bible, the sea is a common symbol of the Gentile nations. And what does Jesus say in Luke 21, 24? Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
Right, so the mountain being cast into the sea, this is one of the interpretations of it. So Jesus is giving instructions about Jerusalem's future and the transfer of the kingdom to the church. And as it says in Hebrews 12, 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. Right? That's us together with all the saints. <laughs> we are, spiritually speaking, in heaven right now at Mount Zion. The Christian church, which is Christ's body, is the new temple and house of prayer for all nations. Remember when Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well and she says, you know, which mountain is the proper mountain for me to worship on? And Jesus says, the time is coming where neither mountain is going to be the place of worship, right? God is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And where is the spirit of God? It's with his people where two or three or are gathered. So Jesus uh, wants his apostles then, who are going to be the foundation for this uh, new kingdom, for the church, to not make the same mistake the Jews made. So the Jews were withholding forgiveness from the Gentiles, exchanging their salvation for worldly profit. And Jesus commands the apostles then to offer forgiveness to the nations freely. He doesn't want the apostles to make the same mistake the Jews made or the same mistake that you know, the Roman Catholic Church made at the time of the Reformation, right? Charging money for time off in purgatory, right? That, that kind of stuff. This is what Jesus is getting at. This is why he says to them, And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, that your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And then notice how he seals this command to forgive with a very solemn warning. But if you don't forgive... Neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Jerusalem was destroyed because they stopped worshiping God. They rejected Christ, they refused forgiveness, and they turned God's house into a hideout for thieves. And whenever the church becomes like this, God comes to it, and God comes to it with anger. Jesus visits his church every Lord's Day and investigates to see if there is any fruit on our little fig tree. And if there is not, curse and judgment will fall. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation is Jesus sending letters of discipline and encouragement to the seven churches. So this is not just, you know, God did this in times past. It's something that he continues to do. And actually, that judgment increases all the more now that we are worshiping at Mount Zion. This is not something that is just an old covenant reality. It's something that continues in the church today. So if we are lukewarm, Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. If we are too tolerant of immorality and false teaching and allow the spirit of Jezebel to infect the church, Jesus will come and he will discipline us. Listen to what he says in Revelation 2.18 to the church at Thyatira. He says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds of and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. 
Right? This is what the risen and glorified King Jesus says to his church. I'll close with this. Jesus is zealous for the purity of his bride. He wants you to be spotless and without blemish. He wants you to be fruitful and to bear fruit that remains. And the only way that this can happen is if you seek forgiveness for your sins and you forgive those who have sinned against you. That is how you become a Christian, and that's also how you stay a Christian. It's really that simple. So don't be all leaves and no fruit. Don't be all leaves and no fruit, lest you dry up and wither. Come to Christ, and he will make you alive. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I ask that you would visit your church, that you would make your presence known and felt amongst us. We know that you say that judgment begins here at the house of God. Lord, I ask that you would make us to be fruitful, that you would convict us of sin, that you would encourage us who are weary, that you would cause us to persevere in trusting you all the way unto the end. God, we ask also that you would remove the lampstand, that you would quench the light of those churches who have wandered from you and are even getting in the way of people coming to you. May we heed the many churches, the many denominations that are no longer faithful. May we see how you have destroyed them, how you have judged them who are apostate and keep us from going that same direction. God, make us to be faithful to you. We ask this in your name and amen. How does Jesus come to dwell inside of you? Well, Jesus says in John 14, 23, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. When Christians love God and do what he says, the whole Trinity comes and dwells within us. This starts by us knowing God and having our minds filled with true thoughts of Him. And then from that knowledge of who God is and all that Christ has done for us, we are moved to love Him. And in loving Him, our spiritual appetite is both satisfied and increased to desire God even more. It is through knowledge and love that God dwells in His people. And here at this table, we are given physical, sensible signs to stir up our spiritual affections and appetite for Jesus. So come and receive the knowledge of God. Eat and drink with love in your soul. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. The charge is this. Don't be all leaves and no fruit. And I also would like to invite you to join us for our psalm sing after service. Receive now the benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And amen. Amen. Go in peace.